0: Welcome to Piano Rhapsody, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the journey of an amateur piano player striving to play Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day. Every week, we listen to one of the pieces along the road to that goal, exploring the history surrounding the work and the music within. Hopefully, we all leave this episode with a little more knowledge and appreciate classical piano music just a little bit more. This is episode 7.4, the fourth and final episode in a series spotlight on one of the premier composers of the Romantic period, Frédéric Chopin. Chopin was a rare composer in that he nearly dedicated his entire life's work to solo piano, but he utilized a range of musical forms, including polonaises, nocturnes, and mazurkas, which we've already talked about in the previous three episodes of this series. Today, we're going to continue this dive into Chopin's body of work by exploring another popular musical form, the waltz. The word waltz originates from the German verb waltze, meaning to roll or revolve. It's another dance in triple time, but the waltz does not have Polish origins. The dance has a deep history and is believed to date back to the 16th century, when French philosopher Michel de Montaigne wrote about a dance he saw in 1580 in Germany, where he describes dancers that held each other so closely that their faces touched. Back in this time, the dance was considered scandalous, ungodly, and for the lower classes, and was given the names Weller or Spinner. Around 1750, this peasant dancing came to be named Walza, It remained a dance of the lower class until it started to spread in the late 1700s. The European upper class was still dancing the more stately minuets of Mozart, Haydn, and Handel during this time. But the younger noblemen would slip away to the parties of their servants, and they observed that they were having a lot more fun. From here, it didn't take long for the waltz to become formally introduced into high society. Not everyone was interested in having fun, however. The older generations and the devoutly religious members of society described the waltz as the shameless, indecent, whirling dance of the Germans. There was one place where the waltz thrived, and that was Vienna, one of the cultural centers of Europe. The waltz was so popular in Vienna during the 1780s that there are waltzes often titled the Viennese waltz. Don Curzio wrote about Vienna during this time, saying that the ladies of Vienna are particularly celebrated for their grace and movements of waltzing, of which they never tire. The waltz spread from Vienna to the rest of Europe, including England, in the early 1800s, even though it was considered indecent by many. The waltz even twirled its way across the Atlantic to the United States of America, where it was banned by Mission Priests in California because of its closed dance position. You know, with all of the old remakes going on right now, I think this would be the perfect Footloose prequel, so get on that, Netflix. Brushing aside the scandalous origins of the waltz, Chopin transformed the idea of the waltz from a dance for the feet to, once again, concert music for the ears. His waltzes span tones from exuberant and joyful to, like typical Chopin, melancholic and introspective. Around 20 of Chopin's waltzes have survived the test of time. Only eight waltzes were published during Chopin's lifetime, while the rest were published years after Chopin's death. A good chunk of these likely collected by his sister Ludwika, who refused to burn them like her brother requested. Today, we're going to take a look at one of these waltzes that were published posthumously. Chopin's Waltz in A-flat Major, Opus Posthumus 69, Number 1, a work also titled The Farewell Waltz. The work was composed in 1835, but not published until 1855, and dedicated to a Mademoiselle Maria Wodczynska, a young lady who played a major role in Chopin's life. Maria Wodczynska was from a wealthy Polish family. Her three brothers attended Chopin's father's boarding school where Chopin became acquainted with her family and even gave her piano lessons from time to time. As the years passed, Maria grew into a beautiful young woman with whom Chopin became quite infatuated. But Chopin was a shy, docile young man who didn't quite know how to express his feelings toward Maria. So like with all of his other emotions, he expressed them through music. Chopin sent her copies of compositions that he dedicated to her, including a certain waltz that bears the inscription, Poor Mademoiselle Marie, Dresden, 1835. Maria wrote on her copy, La Dou, which is how the piece came to be known as the Farewell Waltz, even though Chopin may not have ever recognized it by that name. One evening... Maria's mother, Teresa, invited Chopin to give a concert at their home for a smattering of Polish elite. Just to recap the politics at the time that we discussed in a bit more detail last week. Poland was occupied by Russia, which caused an exodus of Polish elite across Europe. The Wodczynski family is among those who fled Poland, and they were living in Dresden at the time back to the evening of this intimate concert. Chopin played a program of his own pieces, and then began to play an improvised version of a patriotic Polish song called Poland Has Not Yet Perished, which includes the lyric, What the aliens have taken from us, we shall retrieve with a saber. Essentially a call to arms. Among the attendees at this soiree were two diplomats from the Russian embassy, who were, shall we say, less than pleased by this musical declaration of revolt. After this event, the Vodchinsky family received pressure to leave Dresden for supporting such a demagogue like Chopin. After Chopin left Dresden and the Vodchinsky family, Maria wrote to Chopin expressing how everyone missed him dearly and how her father regarded him as a fourth son. She wrote that she played the waltz he gave her frequently, and how her family often asked to hear it. It was clear from this letter that she, too, had fallen for Chopin. Maria also had a moment similar to Juliet, where she wishes that Chopin carried a Polish last name. I never cease to regret that you are not called Chopinski. Chopinski, Montagu'ski, a rose by any other name, right? She included this line likely because she began to view Chopin as a potential suitor and knew how important his name would be to her family. Remember that Chopin's father was born French, and while he was a loyal Polish patriot, he never changed his family name to reflect that fact. Chopin made a long trip to the vacation town of Marienbad in the Czech Republic to meet up with the Vodzinski family at the White Swan Hotel. It was here where Chopin mustered up the courage to ask Maria for her hand in marriage. Maria's mother Teresa approved of this arrangement, but asked Chopin to keep it a secret until she convinced her husband that this was a good idea. By the time Chopin needed to return back to Paris, Teresa still had not discussed the engagement of her daughter with her husband, telling Chopin to take care of his health and everything will be fine. She gave him strict orders to wear woolen stockings, slippers at night, drink gum water, which was a drink laced with opium, and even gave him a bedtime. Wear your PJs. Take some drugs and get to bed by 11. You know, just your standard bedtime routine. Maria sent Chopin a final love letter, expressing how excited she was to see him in a few months. Unfortunately, the reunion of the young lovers would not come to be. The Wojcinkys moved back to Poland, and Chopin's relationship with the family turned icy. Maria a passive girl who deferred to the rule of her parents, likely fell victim to her father's disapproval of her pending nuptials. After getting the family in hot water for that performance with the Russian diplomats, his tainted French last name, and his weak constitution, Maria's father did not find Chopin suitable as a husband for his daughter. The letters from Maria and her mother Teresa took a turn. They were brief, functional, and lacked affection. Chopin soon saw the writing on the wall and realized that his engagement was doomed, one of the only surviving relics of their relationship being the autographed manuscript of a waltz. It's kind of funny that Chopin wrote this waltz before he was even engaged to Maria because it seems to tell their story of heartbreak and nostalgia for the better times. Even without the story behind the music, it's one of my favorite Chopin waltzes, and one of the more well-known ones. The farewell waltz can be split into three parts in a rondo form of A-B-A-C-A. The A theme is typical Chopin, a lyric, song-like, longing melody Paired with a standard waltz accompaniment and a healthy dose of rubato, bending time to amplify the emotional impact. We've talked a bit about waltzes in prior episodes, but one of the distinguishing features aside from the triple 1-2-3 meter is the nature of the left-hand accompaniment, usually started with a bass note on the first beat, followed by two chords on the second and third beats. The classic way that music teachers like to describe this is an um pa pa feel. So let's isolate the left hand in the beginning to really highlight this waltz feel. If we're comparing this waltz to a breakup, This A section would be the part where our broken-hearted hero is lying on the couch in a pair of sweatpants, a pint of haagen in hand, while they reflect on their lost love. And they're also feeling a little bit judged, because Netflix keeps asking them, Hey, are you really still watching this show? You know, if you subtract the feelings of heartbreak, I personally like to refer to this scene as Friday night. But enough about my life. The waltz then takes a turn to the B section, which reflects memories of happy times in the relationship. The music takes a turn from melancholic and lyric to jumping and spinning, which Chopin marks con anima, or with spirit, This happy reverie is short-lived, however, and the happier B section fades back into the reality of the melancholic A section. After coming off the happier music from the B section, the contrast of the A section hits a little harder this time. We spend some more time here catching another episode of our Netflix show on the couch. Maybe even start season two, who knows. But then we enter another memory, and enter section C of the piece. This section is a little chaotic, with more spinning, which seems to spiral a bit out of control. This section culminates in a progressive, chromatic build, to a climactic peak. Continuing our breakup analysis, I would throw out a theory that this part may represent the memory of a relationship-ending argument, with a crescendo building to a fiery exchange that there's really no turning back from. Finally, to complete the rondo form, we expect a last return of the A theme, which has an even greater emotional impact the third time around. We know this theme by now. It's familiar, and it closes out this waltz with a strong sense of bittersweet nostalgia. So grab your favorite Pina Hagendaz and let's indulge in Chopin's Waltz in A flat major, posthumous opus 69, number one. The Farewell Waltz, scenes of a breakup in the rondo form of A-B-A-C-A. Reflection to happiness to anger, back to nostalgia. A fitting musical theme for the relationship between Chopin and Maria that was not allowed to flourish. So, we spent four weeks exploring the melancholic music of Chopin. And I've really enjoyed making these episodes. But where is our next stop? Next episode, we will jump ahead to the post-romantic era and introduce a new composer to the podcast, the eccentric yet popular Eric Satie. Even if his name is not familiar to you, I'm betting his music might ring a bell. We'll talk all about that next time. The standalone recording of this waltz can be found directly in the podcast feed. If you'd like to hear more, check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for the recordings of all the pieces heard on this podcast and more. If you're interested in taking your classical music knowledge from the piano to the orchestra, please consider checking out the link in the episode details for a free two-month trial of Prime Phonic, a classical music streaming service with over 3 million tracks to choose from. It also helps out this podcast, so I appreciate the support. Another way to support this podcast for free is to click on subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. Or even better, consider rating and reviewing. If you'd like to reach out to me, find me on Twitter at PianoRhapsody or by email at podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, for your time and your ears And I'll talk to you next week from the post-romantic period. Farewell, everybody.